Brought to you by the Rugby Outlet Mall, equipping you for freedom and connection through rugby. Find out more at RugbyOutletMall.com. Welcome, everybody, to another great episode of Grow Rugby. My name is Gift Gift Tommy Baylor, and this is the podcast where we get to speak with people who have found, created, taken advantage, or been able to determine opportunities that come via rugby and the stories that they have to tell about it. Yo, we got a great guest for you today, uh, Farrah Douglas. Like, this was one of my favorite conversations, uh, and this isn't even to say none of them are, but this was one of my favorite because this was such a uniquely different um, conversation on the usage of rugby. And while typically we usually go kind of an origin story and we wind it in, this one became much more of a metaphysical, philosophical story, and uh, and this this was interesting to me, and it's it's a longie and a goodie. Can't deny that it is a longie, but it is a goodie that is just it, it it's it's a great precept from one's internal identification uh, journey to how it relates to the field itself. So, um, just so you guys know, Farrah Douglas, she is the head coach over at Mount Saint Mary's uh, College. Uh, up in uh, Emmitsburg, Maryland. Oh, I'm sorry, correct that. Mount St. Mary's University, not college. Mount St. Mary's University at Emmitsburg, Maryland. Yeah, I got it written down, so I got to be able to see it. But she has been a USA Rugby Development Coach. She has been a USA Rugby uh, National Player. She has been in this game, and she is as inquisitive as she is skilled as she is kind as she is insightful like this was this was really interesting so i think you guys are going to really enjoy this and of course you know don't forget we'd all get to do this because a rugby outlet mall man definitely go check it out we're getting ready to put some new products and we got some new stuff starting to come in but we got some great things to be able to connect you with the rugby community connect people together obviously supporting hbcu rugby classic and hbcu rugby programs and of course the novelty rugby stuff that we have in set and merch including foods um little bit of gear and uh novelty things that are great for travel and mobility because this is all about opportunity and mobility and providing the equipment for that so you guys check it out rugbyoutletmall.com and you guys can use coupon code grow g-r-e-a-u-x rugby to be able to get uh 20% off um all GTRN or HBCU Rugby Classic specific merchandise. So you guys enjoyed and also definitely go check out Singapore to Tokyo uh, any way we can. The documentary still streaming now on video on demand and streaming. Guys, it's a great documentary, even more relevant now, especially as we are having to keep separating ourselves more and more. But to get to see the way that the world works and world works via rugby, this is definitely the experience to be able to take it as these two men go through Southeast Asia to head over to the Rugby World Cup 2019. You guys are going to want to be part of this exhilarating journey, and you guys can go find it at uh, Red Earth Films, 
dot vhx dot tv. That's Red Earth Films dot vhx dot tv. And check it out. It is a seven episode, twenty minute per episode journey. You guys can watch it fractionally over time, but it will be well worth the money. So you guys, thank you, and uh, I'm not even going to hold you guys off much longer. Great guest, Farrah Douglas. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to another great episode of Grow Rugby. I got another V.I. Guest for us today, coming out of Mount St. Mary's, women's head coach Farah Douglas, the legend. I don't think you guys even realize how much so. Farah, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, uh, one of the earliest times that I, I got to to know you or I get to see who you were was actually because of Roots Rugby, and I think it was interconnection through the group. And then I started hearing your name pop up more and more around the networks. And then I started looking up. I'm like, I was like, okay, she's a head coach for here. And then you start looking at your resume and you're like, oh my gosh, you've been in the game for, um, you've been doing in the game for a minute, like getting it through. And I'm like, wait, wait, I need to get to know who this person is a lot more. So I I have to say, like, you have really kind of clicked in on this hard for you. Like, was this always something that felt like a calling or like? Is being in, in the coaching realm and really in this youth development realm, is this felt like a calling for you or how, how did that shape out for you? Well, I think the minute I stepped on a practice field for rugby, the calling happened. But I think it was probably a year after I graduated from Bowdoin that I realized that this was like a passionate obsession and that rugby was going to be a part of me forever. Um, the coaching piece, I think just is something that naturally, I naturally fell into because uh, at heart, I'm an educator. Um, I spent about five years working in youth development while I was living in Chicago. Um, and within that job, I was a director for um, an out of like an after school program, as well as running youth and family outreach for a very, very small local nonprofit to Chicago that sort of operated like a small scale version of like Boys and Girls Club of America. Right. And then when I came to the DC area, I spent three years actually in education teaching. I did a year as a, an assistant teacher in an autistic pre- preschool class. It was a pilot program. Um, in DC public schools. And then I spent two years in a charter school system as an assistant teacher in kindergarten. So you really have been, it has been a grassroots from across the board where you've always started trying to develop from the beginning on. Yeah. Um, I spent the greater portion of my coaching has been like grassroots youth level. When I was living in Chicago, um, there was a local school called Noble Street, which now runs a multi-campus school that has rugby on all of its campuses, and they compete within like a like sort of a school league, so to speak. 
Um, it's been some, some time since I've been a, a part of that. Clearly, I left Chicago in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 2004 was my first coaching experience in rugby. Nice. I worked with Nobi Takaki, who is a Chicago North Shore player, which was my club women's club side at that time. And former Eagle and teammate Pam Kosenki and the three of us worked together to coach that program. And Good. which is kind of amazing because, you know, that just started as like this one team in Chicago at a at the inner city school that was like near like a park with a not so great neighborhood. And it has morphed into this, you know, public school with like multiple campuses and multiple teams for both boys and girls. And to imagine that girls were signing up for it as a class elective. And we were practicing at seven o'clock in the morning outside. Um, and where rugby for the school program has come and just in general where the game is, especially for women is pretty cool. And to be able to reflect back that my first rugby coaching experience, I was very much still a player and was 2004 and it's 2020 and I'm an NCAA head coach. Like the rate, if you you had told me I would have a career as a coach, I would have laughed at you. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? But it, it shows such an uh, it shows such a, a trademark to the consistency and as well as the hard work that goes into it because eventually you start to see it, it's weird you watch these things kind of almost um, reveal themselves it almost attracts into it after a little bit it no longer becomes you're working towards this it's like oh I've been working I've been trying to put out this this value this energy this. Uh, you know, this assistance out there and all of a th- sudden things kind of start to develop around it and you find yourself in a place where you might not, you want, you didn't see it from the beginning and then you find yourself here and you're like, this makes sense, but wow, the journey has been, been unique. Yes, very much so. So I want to ask, cause I want to go kind of start from the beginning on this because there's okay. in that just alone, there's so much to be able to, to delve into but I want to go from like, what, how did you actually get started in rugby itself? Oh, that's, it's kind of like, I think of it as like a funny story. Um, so I started sports when I was 10 years old. I danced for a very long time. So you would think I'm graceful. <laughs> I am not. Um, and when I sw- swapped into sports, it was the typical sports that girls grow up playing. Right. Volleyball, soccer, basketball. Fast forward into high school. Um, my freshman year of high school, I was a basketball and soccer athlete. Mm-hmm. And I swapped schools. And they did not have a girls soccer team. But you could try out for the boys team. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I was still in that like awkward phase when I played um, youth soccer. I was a little heavy set. I wore glasses with sport bands, and my glasses were way too large for my face. And you know, I had that awful '80s style. <laughs> I used to wear the biker shorts with the crop top, and I'd pull all my hair back as tight as I could and slick that slick that back <laughs> into this big poofy ponytail, and then I would flat iron and curl my bangs. It looked like I was on a motorcycle that had gone through a wind tunnel. I like, 
I go back and look at those pictures and I'm like, oh God. So I was just a huge package of like athletic awkwardness. I was an athlete, but I was this chubby girl with weird hair style and an even awkwarder style of like fashion sense. So boys picked on me because there weren't, there weren't a lot of girls. Um, I was maybe one of two and there most definitely weren't a lot of faces like mine. So I got picked on a lot. Um, and I had two older brothers, an older sister and a younger brother. So oh wow! responding in aggression was not necessarily something I was not accustomed to. I, used to, I could only play the first and last quarter of basketball because I, I would fall out. Um, <laughs> Look, you so, have to set your dominance somehow within the family early. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so with soccer, I, I learned to be physical because if I didn't, they would single me out. Right. So, you know, you get to high school and all of a sudden boys are a little less gross. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going through a second phase of like sort of adolescent growth and feeling even less secure in my, like in my being. So mm-hmm. when they told me I could try out for the boys soccer team, I was like, um, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was a strong kind I was of like, too, too many awkward levels that were going to be happening at the yeah, same it was time. Like, just like, like the crossing of everything, you know, and like when I reflect back on it, I wish I had not made that decision because I really enjoyed soccer and was, a, mm-hmm. I think, a fairly decent soccer player. Um, but, but it opened other doors. Well, so, that quick question even on, even on that. You're talking about soccer that's happening in the 80s, 80s and 90s at that point. So we're, it's not even at its hot moments like it is now. Like, no. So you already have that isolation, that, that, that already isolation of you're a soccer person in a very not soccer kind of area? Yeah. I, I mean, I think in, the, like, in my childhood around like, sports, you, you have like, two things intersecting. Like, I am... Um, I'm mixed. Right. My, my mother raised me as a single mom and she's white. So traditionally the areas that we lived in were very middle-class, very not diverse. Right. My, the high school I ended up graduating from, I want to say had a probably a little bit stronger of a Hispanic population because of the location. Um, but in general, there weren't a lot of faces of color. And you're talking about a public high school where we had an indoor track, an outdoor track, a oh, wow. hockey rink. They, they paid for AP exams. And it's not a she-she school by any means, but that's the type of environment. So then you add that I'm a girl. Right. And I'm athletic. And I, I think, it, you know, in that time, in like 80s and like early 90s, like, women's professional sports were sort of like like this whisper like when I played basketball like I used to tell my dad I'm gonna be the first female in the NBA like and you flash back to now I'm 43 and there's a WNBA right but at that time when I was in middle school not even a thought process that would have been no and nobody would have corrected me to say there'll be a women's professional league by the time you're an adult. Right. Like, we didn't have those conversations. 
So it was like this intersecting of being this awkward girl, playing sports, being aggressive, um, trying to find a way to express myself because dance was fun, but uh, I didn't did, like dance. It didn't fulfill it wasn't my thing. Yeah. It didn't fulfill that itch right there. And then, you know, not only being a girl, but then being on these teams where you look around and there are no other brown faces. There are no other people of color playing. When I started playing a little bit older basketball and one of my dad's cousins was my coach, it was the first time that someone looked like me. Wow. You know, so it was like, wow. And that was, that was by high school time that you had. No, that was, um, that would have been probably fifth, sixth grade. Okay. Okay. Right at that. Again, at that perfect time where development is just starting to kick in, you know? So, wow. Wow. So I, I can imagine, I can imagine already where, again, we talk about the multiple layers of awkward that was already going to be entering into that phase. And especially at the high school level, when now outside on top of what's just like, okay, I got to deal with this from a, a personal level. Now you have your own emotions and you're starting to take in your surroundings in a much more self-aware uh, environment like the high school environment creates. Yep. So I declined soccer. The cross country coach was, you know, kind of like skiing around, like I need to find some athletes. And I, I don't know how she got my contact information, but I got this phone call. That was like, introduced herself, asked if I would be interested in coming out for the team. And I said, what's cross country? Right. And she said, well, it's distance running. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, you run three miles. And like, I used to um, do this thing called the walk for hunger yeah. with my aunt. And so in my head, I calculated, I was like, hmm, I can walk 20 miles. Like, what's another? What's- I should be able to. What's like, I should be able to run three. So I said, sure. And I think the first practice I showed up to, they were doing like 600 meter hill sprints. I was like, what did I just do? But I'm, but I'm not a quitter. So yeah. if I commit to something, regardless of whether I feel miserable or not, like I will see it to end. So <laughs> I did not enjoy that first practice, but I stayed and captain of the team my senior year. Nice. Um, I run a lot now post-retirement from rugby, but it's funny. because it's Player retirement. Center. Player retirement. There's never a true retirement from rugby. <laughs> well, yes. Okay. I will rephrase that. My player, player retirement. Um, but as a cross-country runner, I just, like, I used to drive my coach crazy because I – because a competitive person in me could not control. So like I always managed to keep myself in the top seven for finishes for our team, but the, you know, the gun would go off and I'd be like, Oh yeah. And I take (laughs) off running and I still had those glasses because I didn't get my contacts until I think my junior or senior year of high school. So I'd have the sport band, these glasses, and I'd slip the hair back and then have this huge bun on the top of my head. And I would rabbit the race. So you'd see the whole field and there'd be me in front of everybody. Right. Like, hell yeah, I got this. And then slower and slower and slower. (laughs) And then I call it now buffalo hunting, but I would find someone in the race 
right. who was not a fast person. And then I would run with them. And then the last like 800 to 400 meters, I'd be like, peace. So and then pop it. And then, yeah. Stop and then it. I'd be out. And my coach used to be like, Sarah, if you would just pace yourself, do you know how good you could potentially be? And I'd just shrug my shoulders and be like, okay. <laughs> and like, I get it now, but at the time I didn't really like have a concept. Right. Cause you're seeing of, it from, you're seeing it from the, the back end up because for you, again, it sounds like between the competitiveness that comes from soccer sports and family it's look, let me kill it early. And then I'm just going to get my body. But as long as I finish strong, like we're going to win. We got this. Like, what's the big deal? I'm finishing strong. Yep. Oh. So I did cross country and because I did cross country um, and the high school I was at, there were I um, cousins who had gone to school there previously mm-hmm. and the indoor track coach approached me about coming out for track during the cross country season. Cause the spring track coach was a cross country coach. So that was done. Like uh, I wasn't getting out of that. I was about to ask if you were so quick off the bat for the for early marathons, especially within that first eight hundred. I was gonna say, why didn't nobody come talk to you about track? That that sounds like a perfect setup for an eight hundred meter minimum, and let alone a four hundred relay. Yeah, so well, I'm a very much like um, my rugby career. I'm a tweener. <laughs> Um, so I did indoor and outdoor track, but originally the indoor track coach reached out to me because my cousins were throwers. Ah, I see. I see. So he made the assumption that (laughs) I might be genetically gifted for throwing (laughs) much like my, my family members. (laughs) Yeah. So, so I said, Sure, because I wasn't going to play basketball anymore. Um, I had done JV basketball my freshman year, swapped schools. Um, there was some politics going on with, you know, parents and whatnot. And I just mm. was not, like, ha- not, be not part feeling of this. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and I did discover that I really did enjoy cross country. So I said, why not? Um, but at that time, I'm not quite a sprinter, and I'm, and I wasn't quite distance runner so I pretty much got thrown into everything so I did the like sort of like the middle distances and indoor I ran uh the 300 the 400 I was on a four by four Mm -hmm. um and the thousand I can't remember which it was like 600 or a thousand but essentially Mm -hmm. I did those like middle distance one as well as shot shot put um and Whenever we were short someone in high school for the t- two mile mm-hmm. and indoors is awful because it's just like laps and laps and laps. Coach would say, Farah, I need someone to run his two mile Saturday. You're in. <laughs> and I, like, my eyes would just get big because, you know, like the big workouts were like repeat threes and fours because right. I was a middle distance person. And I was, you know, you just said, <sighs> okay. <laughs> So that was, that was indoor and then outdoor track. Um, I did the shot put and discus and then like middle distances, but the throwing coach that first year, which would have been my sophomore year, Mm -hmm. um, was also a football coach. Oh, nice. And 
he asked me to come out for football and I was all about it. My mother was like, absolutely not. <laughs> that was the end of that discussion. Wait, so, wait, 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 hold on. So was it all about hitting because of like the, uh, just like being able to be that second to youngest child and already knowing the roughness or was it just because of the basis of what you had already said before? You're so used to having to learn how to deal with contact that you wanted just another area where you could level that contact with a lot less repercussions like you would get in soccer or even in basketball to some extent. I think it would, I think for me, I think it's a combination of that sort of having to kind of stand your ground. Okay. Um, as well as I just, I like contact. <laughs> like this, I was born in this is what I do. This is what I yeah, do. Yeah, like I mean, it sounds like funny, but like I like contact and I think one of the things that I discovered through track and field is that I have a very natural transfer of power. Right. Which makes sense to me that like contact is something I enjoy because that being able to transfer that like force through movement um, came fairly naturally to me. I think if I had maybe picked up something like wrestling when I was younger, uh, I probably would have stayed, stayed in that space because it would have been a place where I think all of the things that kind of brought me to rugby probably would have kept me there. And I may never have, you know, crossed over into, into our sport. That makes sense. I, cause I, the, when, when you were talking and, and you're talking about what you were doing with sports, especially the fact that you added that you did shot put and discus, it made me think that you, that means you were probably a very strong lower body person, which means you probably have a lower center of gravity, which would make sense again when it comes down to your middle distance running because you're able to maintain a pace, uh, obviously endurance wise, but maintain a pace and speed that would make sense to that. And it makes sense with the soccer component of it, which I'd have to assume that maybe you're a midfielder, midfielder for the most part. I wish I could remember where I played. <laughs> oh, you I remember in basketball, I, was just, I played in this, I was a center. Okay. Which is, yeah. Well, so I got really good at like shooting from the top of the, the key, but I mean, it's been so long since I've played either sport. Shamefully, like once I discovered rugby, it was like, I'm sorry, what are those? <laughs> like, my, it was like the blinders came on. What is this peons of sports that you speak of over here? <laughs> yeah, that's awful. <laughs> I, but I've but I've always stayed. I've always stayed like I don't know. Like a part of me is always still kind of like in touch. Clearly, because like I'm on like day three hundred and. 34 of my run streak um <laughs> with like track and field because that's what I went to college for right I was cross country and then I did indoor and outdoor track and I was a multi so I did the heptathlon and the pentathlon when I was at Bowdoin and by the time I graduated there the only track and field events that I had not competed in um were the triple jump because we discovered I was not coordinated enough for that <laughs> The dancer's thing um, didn't, didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. And um, what is it? The 400, the 400 meter hurdles. Okay. But every other event I did, because at that time we didn't have, there was no pole vault for girls. I'm pretty right. sure I probably would not have done pole vault because I'm, I'm bottom heavy. Um, so trying to like flip myself over that. Little, mm, probably, yeah. 
Yeah, that probably. <laughs> so we can count that in like, so three events I didn't participate in between high school and collegiate track and field, which is kind of, I think it's kind of cool. Cause you know, when I meet people and we talk about track and they're like, Oh, well, what was your event? I said, well, what was it? Everything. <laughs> so wait, coming out of high school, does, were you highly sought after by universities or was there a reason why Bowman became like the one that you, you uh, ended up going to? No, I was decent in like the throwing events. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like, to be honest, I don't think that I sort of like discovered like my athletic ability and what I could challenge myself to tap into until after high school. So Bowdoin was my choice of schools because at the time I wanted to be pre-med and it was an agreeable distance away from home for my mom because she could drive there if she wanted to. <laughs> Thankfully, she never just showed up. Um, and my mom is a nurse. Okay. Two of her sisters are nurses. And my godmother, who's my mom's best friend, and they've been best friends since they were like 12, is also a nurse. So it was supposed so, to be in the blood one way or another that you were going to do medicine. Yeah, and uh, she just made me promise not to be a nurse. She said, just be a doctor because you'll do the same things that a doctor does and not get paid right. as well. So I prefer you to go to medical school. Um, and she spoke with the doctors that she worked with and they actually recommended Odin that they had a really strong, strong science program for a liberal arts school. And I went there to visit for like a student of color weekend and was like, this is amazing. I love it. <laughs> then I got there and I was like, where'd all the people of color go? <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Where, where was the preview people that you showed me last time? Like, what, what happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the place looked super diverse because it was like this weekend where all of us came. <laughs> and, it, you know, so it was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. And it's a, and it's a beautiful campus. Right. Um, <laughs> that I showed up for freshman orientation. And I was like, what happened? <laughs> and, I mean, that's, I feel that, you know, the crazy thing is that still happens. Like, you know, you kids show up to school and it's like, I saw this differently. I thought, I thought, I thought this was going to be another experience. It's like, they turned a channel on you. They turned a channel. They showed you the, they showed you the, what do they call it? In like the hotels, whenever it's like everything is tourists and everything going on. Yeah. And you go out and you're like, the amenities. This isn't as shiny as I thought it was supposed to be. Like, well, hold on. What, what, what changed over here? (laughs) Yeah. Um, but like. It still was, it was, it was still a good decision. Um, There was a lot of like learning that happened in behind uh, the diverse factor of the school, but that, so I showed up to, you know, cross country and go back to that like awkward moment. And, you know, when you think about like, you know, stereotypical distance runner, they are thin. Right. Um, like really skinny, they, yeah. Really, yeah. Really- they're skinny. They've got like um, you know, elongated muscles. They tend to be a bit taller, but they're all look like they have zero percent body fat, and right. that even with all the running I do now, that is not me. I'm just not built for that. I am. I am built for for power. Right. So, and it took me a really long, long time to like sort of understand that about like how my body is sort of like put together um, and how it exists in the world. 
so you come back to like my first year of college. It's the fall, just got to campus. I'm like, where'd all the people of color go? And I'm at cross country, which is all right, kind of white. Right. And I was the fat kid on the team and I was slow relative to everyone else. So because at that like, point you were better for 800s and 800, 400s yeah, and it's a different game. So with I was 32. I, I was miserable. It just, uh, I, it was hot and humid in Maine <laughs> and like these girls were just super, super thin. And it was like that, you know, and you'd like to say that like as an athlete, you don't think about those things, but I did. And I looked around and nobody even remotely was built like me. Right. And I went in, saw Coach Slavinsky, and I just was like, yeah, I don't want to run. I'll see you at indoor track. <laughs> so I quit. And they were recruiting in the dorm for rugby. Wait, let me, let me ask this. Because you had said something before that you didn't like quitting things prior to. So in that moment, like the level of decision making that you had to go into that, like how much did it end up affecting your what you did moving forward because there was this moment that it was let's call it a challenge that you stepped away from versus all these other times where there's always been that awkwardness before like what was that like for you as an athlete in that moment you know like trying to kind of go back to that moment and that decision i i just was so unhappy i mean i you know, going back to high school and like running when <laughs> coach would have her car and follow us for the fart lakes and she'd go park somewhere and you'd see her. And that's meant that's when you had to like pick up your pace and run as hard as you could. Cause she started that timer and she'd drive somewhere else and stop and yeah. wait, you know, Oh, they were miserable. We were just like, Oh, this is terrible. It sucks. <laughs> but like, I never felt like I like I didn't belong in that space. Right. Um, and I'm sure probably part of it also helped that like I was one of our top seven runners. So it's a reward factor that keeps getting kicked. Yeah. So I'm still feeling like competitive and then to, to come to Bowdoin and you know, it's a D three NESCAC school and they have a very good, um, track and field and cross country program there. Mm. And to all of a sudden, not be able to compete and to physically feel out of place in a way that I couldn't compensate. Like feeling out of place as a little girl playing soccer with boys, you physically can compensate for that, that right. space by making them know who you are. Right. And like the slide checking and it's getting a it, yellow cards. It, yeah, like I could, I could physically answer. Right. And then in, in cross country in college, I, I couldn't. I just, I wasn't built the way I needed to be built and didn't have the training or approach to the sport, to running in general, right. to find a space for me to feel comfortable and competitive in my, my skin, like in, in that environment. And mm. yeah, it's the first time I just was like, I don't want to do this. So, but, you know, I'm thankful for it. Um, Cause it adds another layer me, of data and, 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 and 
understanding. Yeah, which I which to, which I use now in my running, but I think it's also why I weathered through burnout when I experienced it as a player and probably why I was so gung-ho about rugby. When, right. Because once that bug, bug bit me, there was like, there's no turning back. And I never would have found it had I suffered through that season of cross country. So, right. you know, it was club at the time. So they, you know, flyer the dorms, they go around and inevitably you probably know somebody who is played or know someone that played like your six degrees of separation. Right. So I got asked to go to practice, never heard of it before. I said, mm-hmm. what is it? I was told it was a cross between soccer and football, which the common for, yeah. And, and to agree it, in certain degrees it, it is, and it's an easy way to explain it to like the layman. And I said, football. <laughs> My mom would probably hate this. Sure. I'll go to practice. <laughs> And they were doing contact that first day. And I was like, oh, my God, I have hit the MF jackpot. My mom is going to hate this. Yes, I am in. And that was it. Like, there was no coming back. No coming back. It's it's interesting because you're now still talking about at this moment. Like, now we have so much more insight into women's rugby. There's so much more developed, still a long way, still ways to go to where it should be, but far further than where it was. And particularly for yes. that time. Um, and this was early nineties or so, correct? Early yeah, this would have been 90, 94. 94. Yeah. So you're, you're right at that, that early stage. So there, there's kind of two parts that I, I, I keep kind of noticing here of, constantly entering and loving these super awkward moments that make you uniquely <laughs> characterized while also simultaneously like also emblemating these characteristics that sometimes don't get churned naturally and then you get to open them up and it's like it's like just revealing it you know like for you was there is that is that been kind of like this this uh game process because uh, for you in, in in discovering kind of a self in this rugby created another variation of us a, a self um realization cross country in high school created kind of a self-realization having to switch out from soccer was a self-realization there's these awkward moments that just open up these new doors for you is is, is would that be an accurate way of maybe looking at it um yeah i, I think that's a it's a it's a pretty good way to explain it um you know, it's funny that you say that because in my head, the, like the intellectual like nerd that exists in there um, <laughs> is going, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, in, so I was, I was a science major and I eventually swapped over to um, a double major in English and African-American studies. Mm-hmm. And I went to grad school for a bit for um, English literature and then quite a bunch of times for that the rugby bug. Um, but one of the things that I've always been fascinated with is like identity. Cause it's very much performative. And, right. you know, we, I, I think there's probably like some like core thread that constitutes who we are. If you will, like, if you want to get like uh, you know, an aura or, or whatever it is, but like, I very much think that yes, but 
what I didn't realize what was happening to me with all of those doors opening and closing and going in one back out to the other and kind of like shifting around is that I was discovering that who I am as a person in the world very much is going to adjust and mold based on what was in front of me, the environment that I was in, whoever I was dealing with, um, very like contextual, if you will. And so I think that what sports did for me was open up this knowledge that it took me a really long time to actually be able to articulate that that was what was happening is that who Farah was in the world was going to be performed differently at every, every moment of the day. Um, the me in September would probably be different than who I might've been at the beginning of October, but Mm -hmm. like the core of who I am was never changing, but I was always going to perform a different version of me based on what I was doing. Right. And I think that, I think that's what sort of like the athletic shifting, if you will, as I was sort of discovering my likes, my strengths, the things that challenged me, um, is that like that idea that identity is very, very much performative at its core. Is that part of the reason why you maybe selected African-American studies as one of your majors as well too? Uh, kind of setting a base because uh, even whenever you mentioned about whenever you first got to Bowdoin and it was through uh, uh, a people of color, uh, I guess it was a black weekend of black visitation weekend kind of situation. Do you think that added into it where it was just like, you know, if I set this foundation of a further learning on myself, it also shows kind of what you were saying, the type of person I'm going to be in terms of my environment and subsequently how I perform on the field even afterwards or on the track. or anything. I think, I think that is a much more articulate way of talking about something that I didn't recognize was happening at the time. Um, so Growing up, being raised by a white mother and being of light skin, um, I, I, to be honest, I, it probably, there were moments growing up where like race kind of like peppered itself in, like getting picked up from a sleepover and my friend's little sister coming to the door and looking at my mom all wide-eyed and looking at me and then going, did you know your mom is white? And I'd say, Yeah. <laughs> You know, and and spending most of my, my childhood growing up with my mom's family and not having a lot of contact with my dad's family, I didn't really think in terms of color right. until Bowdoin. Interesting. And all of a sudden, well, because you get like, so you've got this predominantly white institution right? and you've got a group of people of color um, not just black and African-American, but you've got, you know, Latino, Hispanic, Asian students. Um, and you've got like, a, you know, call us like a core group. And within that, the experiences are very different. I mean, I think people would like to essentialize like African-American experiences, like this is what it is, right. but it, it's not. It's, it's so much range. more complicated and complex and layered and so for me, I never, it just was something that I, I didn't really think deeply of until I right. got there. And then all of a sudden it was in my face with, um, there are a bunch of like racial incidents that had happened on campus. And 
having an assortment of friends from different sort of like different backgrounds and different ways that they were existing in the world. All of a sudden it was like this realization that like, I am different than my mom. Right. When I go out into the world, people will judge me based on the darkness or lightness of my skin because, you know, you've got the inner layering that happens within the, the black community the around colorism. colorism. Right. And that was happening to me in college. And, right. you know, I would talk with family members of my friends who would assume because of the way I enun- enunciated words or spoke, like my grammatical sentence structure, that I was white. I went and visited my best friend for one of our breaks and she's Puerto Rican. Her grandmother yelled at me the entire break and was angry because I didn't know my language. And no matter how many times we told her I wasn't Puerto Rican, <laughs> she would not believe it. You know, what? and understanding me. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden it was like, I was having this like identity crisis and awakening that was happening at the same time. And I think that's probably what, without even realizing it, drew me to African-American studies. Right. And then in the, t- the time that I was at Bowdoin, I, my, I had three kind of advisors that I worked with really well. Two of them, I am, um, there was Professor Muther, who was an English professor, but in the time they were there, we had two new professors that came to Bowdoin during my time. And I, um, Louis Chudasoke, who was a, was Jamaican mm-hmm. and very, very visible on campus, large Rastafarian band we stood with his dreads and like he played drum and bass and he DJed and he was an English professor, but the stuff that he taught was like so not canonical, but so important. So I took, um, eventually he became, I, I did a project, uh, like independent honors project with him. The first class I remember taking with him was like Black Pulp Fiction. And we read um, Iceberg Slim's Pimp. Nice. Like so, and Cecile Brown, the love, li- the love and lives of Mr. Jai Vass Nigger. So it was like all of these, like you know, it's like black. We watched black exploitation films. Yeah. We watched Julie Dash, Daughters in the Dust. So all of this stuff that was very, very important, I think, to your, to sort of like the the canon of the diaspora, so to speak, within the university system that brought to this super white trust fund baby kind of school. And it was unbelievably like eye opening and, you know, around him, so many different conversations were starting to happen. And then my advisor for African-American studies was um, Eddie Glob. Okay. Um, and you can, uh, he, he just had another book that he released. Um, and he is now a professor at Princeton. When he okay. came to Bowdoin, his advisor, when he was in grad school was Cornell West. Wow. Who came and spoke at our graduation. So like having some like profoundly, you know, intellectually brilliant black Americans come to a place like Bowdoin and be exposed to them was. That has to be like, yeah, yeah, like I revealed on a first time plant, just being able to get that. Yeah. And at that time, 
I had classmates and then other students who I was really good friends with that were equally like we're just we're brilliant and so we just there were so many conversations happening around identity and politics because you know a lot of the stuff that happens on campus campuses now where they struggle with like race mm-hmm. are not new like those things were happening i mean right. we had incidents on campus where i mean i had Brunswick police with billy clubs tapping them in my face telling us that we were in an illegal party, which was in campus housing, but it was the African-American student. Right. And then they wanted us to disperse. But then when we went outside, you know, more than three people is a, is an illegal mob, you know, like things like that. Right. I, I want to say my, when I about my sophomore year, kids dressed up like the Ku Klux Klan on our quad, like sheets and all. Wow. And when they got in trouble for it, it was like, oh no, we're, we're cheering to the so Cheerio cute. God. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, so there are like little things that are happening. I don't, I don't say little to, to take it's away to from them, moment. but there, but there's a history of it. And these right. things like they are not new to this moment. Right. Like, it is so systemically interwoven into the fabric of everything that is, America that it just, just like it, it yeah like I'm, sadly you know when when I talk to my athletes at the mount and stuff is happening and even things that are happening out in the world right now the like you know it's kind of gives you this like heavy moment because you're like mm, I'm 43 and your experience isn't all that different than mine was 20 or so years ago right like what where are we you know i I find that interesting because i've always it kind of hit me as i when i got into my 30s and i started seeing this constant repetitive pattern and uh, you'd see it in both innocent and more heavy stuff innocently i would see it in kids behavior where i'm like a lot of these personalities i've literally seen before like i've seen these personalities the way that they interact maybe the uh the the external Sources are a little bit different, but all the little nuances re- tend to repeat themselves. Then, of course, we know it in obviously heavier ones like you explained when it comes to either racial or social or anything like that. And I started kind of thinking that maybe it's not so much a factor of it just, well, like you said, it, it becomes something that's interwoven. It's not so much a factor of not knowing because the knowledge has always been there. You read a little bit and the same thing that happens now has happened 20 years ago, that happened 40 years ago, that happened 60 years ago, so on and so forth. And it almost run within the same level of pattern. It's, it's almost like the wave that we have now almost seems very reminiscent to the wave of the late 70s, uh, uh, the late 60s to early to mid 70s of where black exploitation started to go up and we start to see that increase and then the 80s everything kind of came to a little bit of uh, uh maybe uh, a plateau and then the yeah. 90s we kind of kind of shook and it, you know whatever was hiding whether it's economy whether it just information dispersion but you kind of see these same elements and i always wonder if it's just the factor that with every new generation you have to, if you don't implement context, it becomes a repeat regardless of what the knowledge is there or whether it's not there. I think, I feel like, like there, you know, time is cyclical and therefore so is history. And 
I think that to like sort of like break the current cycle that we're on, you have to you actually have to put a break in the shape in the circle right. to be able to move into move the flow into another direction. But we lack consistency around education, around the narrative. Right. And history is also perspective. And generally speaking, those who hold power are the perspective that is writing history. Absolutely. So, you know, history is not, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but like history is not absolute. Right. Because it is perspective and it is also tied to memory. So if the person in power is controlling like the, the timeline and the perspective through which events are viewed, defined, explained, memorialized, then that's the context that you're going to have. And we have not had a moment in the world, period, mm -hmm. in particular in the U.S., where that group whose perspective is in power has been different. Right. So... Right. You know, I think when you, if you overlay all of these like moments, it, it's the same pattern repeating itself. Like, and, you know, and that's just talking about like, you know, uh, sort of like what's happening here. But I think that's very much true about the world in general, because if you go outside of like our, our present moment, you'll see these patterns are continuing mm -hmm. to happen and the players are different. Right. The landscape is different, but the, the core are... of what is happening it, it is not. Right. And I mean that's that is everywhere. Everywhere. And that's that's that was like I said, it, it it's the interesting consistency of human nature, despite the fact that there is because I think then you get into those instances where you have the books and the knowledge that explain these other sides sometimes. And you're like, oh, like if I had known this, this changes a complete dynamic of how even culture gets played out. I, I think for me, even one and, 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 you know, to this subject was always, um, I think that Colfax rebellion in Louisiana, where uh, after Recon whenever uh, reconstruction was happening and freed slaves kicked in and um, you start to see an influx of black congressional people in in positions of power in the south and it gets to a point where you know obviously white locals end up rebelling against this government body and killing off all these guys in louisiana and you also see it in georgia and the point that i'm making on that is that you almost remove that component of history from what's being taught normally within schools and it creates a narrative of slavery jim crow civil rights, everything that we have issue. And then there's no point where black uh, an excellence had occurred within this black community. It just seems to be a constant range of suffering as opposed to maybe more intentional act of uh, subjugation that occurred. And if you add that little bit of learning inside there, it changes from a cultural standpoint. Hey, this hasn't just been a suffering instance that didn't, that only was started whenever you know slavery occurred and the only time that there was a resonance of positive was 
post slavery, uh, pre slavery, but it was, hey, even afterwards, there was an economic boon that's not just one element of Black Wall Street in Tulsa. There was a legitimate economic bloom within a culture. And now it makes it so that people aren't just, oh, they're just un- incapable and being able to play that narrative over and over and over again. And that goes into everybody's mindset, regardless of either side of the spectrum. You're either fighting against it or you're establishing it. But one way or another, it changes that whole concept where it goes, okay, these were intentional acts. Now our intentions can make a difference even more so. And I think maybe that's what we get to see a little bit now. And that's where you talk about like those little shape changes in the cyclicalness of history. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have a lot of um, ellipses, like these, mo- these historical moments of empty matter where there are narratives and timelines that are just gone. Right. And, and they're not gone because they're lost. They're gone because someone has made a pointed decision to Remove not it. allow them to be articulated. And so we exist in the current state that we exist. Not, you know, it, it, it's not as simple as to say that, like, it's racism. Because it's so much more complicated than that. Because right. racism is, we are in this and 3D, I don't even think, does a good enough job of describing, like, the matrix that we are in. But you've got race, religion, culture, um, gender, sexuality, all of these things, economics, geography, everything is kind of, like, twisting in on itself. And we lack education. Right. Right. Because we have these really succinct black spots, like black holes of information, black holes of where full stories and narratives about people, about culture, about time, about development have just kind of like sucked away into this abyss of non-memory. Right. People truly can't make informed decisions because we aren't informed as, right. as a world, we are not informed because somebody has taken it upon themselves to say that this systemic system of absolute power needs to impose a state. Yeah. It's gotta be, it needs to be protected and shielded. And the only way to do that is to misinform the public. Right. Because if you can if you can misinform the public, then you can control them without controlling them. Right. And you and, and when you and if you look at like you know, communities of poverty, they lack the ability to take care of themselves, right. healthcare, and then they lack access to education. Lack of education, lack of knowledge produces a version of ignorance, which means that you are malleable. Right. You can be controlled without someone, someone actually having to physically put their hands on you and put you somewhere. Right. By not giving you full picture, you can't decision make. It's a, self-generate, it's a self-generating uh, poison, if you want to call it like that. It's a self-generating poison, which is why we always get those concepts of um, uh, generational social depression. 
to say the least, you know, because of that fact. I, and you're right. It, not just you and you're right, but in full agreement, like it's, it's an interesting, it, it is probably one of the most interesting dynamics of human marketing and this, this, uh, uh, disinformation for that you could see in all history because it is so it is so big yet so subtle and it becomes so thought processed into it where you're going like like you said using schools people always go oh man why why do you why do people always complain about schools you have the same opportunity as me there's a chance to go to school and then at least within the US you talk about man properties property taxes are what pay for schools that's an insane concept so that means the moment that you're property value drops. It's not just, oh, your house is less valuable or your building, your real estate is less valuable. You have simultaneously devalued the entire knowledge population that revolves around that area. And that is a massive concept where when you realize how much that little bit grows, especially from early stage, early youth development and how much we play that in education in psychological behavior in nurturing in uh uh, uh in one way or another that leads to our adult lives and it's it's wild again it is a marketing that is probably the most impressive that one could see but not necessarily in the great way not in a good way um no I, yeah so. i mean people people are conditioned to how would i say it Society, modern society conditions people to be incapable of understanding like an existence outside of where their feet currently are. It's like, it's like a warped, you know, they talk about how most Americans don't travel outside of the country. Right. Don't leave their state. Don't leave more than twenty mile radius of where they live. Yeah, and we're almost that is almost like I feel like it is like a bigger way to explain sort of what happens to us, why people are incapable of having what everyone likes to call courageous conversations. Mm -hmm. How do I have a courageous conversation about something that I literally cannot? envision that I, I can't articulate it because in my mind it doesn't exist because I've been misinformed and conditioned from the very moment I came into being to be in the, to be in the world in the way that I am and to see the world, you know, as it exists. It's like, it's like a, it's like a chessboard with super glue on it. Right. Right. So when you look out every, you know, things are fixed. This is, what do you mean? This is wrong. Right. This is what it's been like for me my entire life. And this isn't any different than what my parents saw. And right. so you just kind of get this cycle of like fixed misinformation that creates this sense that like we have this really unintelligible population. And that's not necessarily true. Right. If you remove access and you condition people to be misinformed and miseducated. Where is the room for growth and change? Exactly. And it actually kind of brings me to, to the point and I'm going to end up circling back to rugby, but it's one of the reasons why I've always felt that I've felt really good about what rugby is capable of doing. 
uh, and what is potential. So an example kind of came in. Um, so I went to a tournament in Vietnam uh, a couple of years back, and I went again obviously, recently. And I remember whenever I first always heard about Vietnam, you hear it through the history books because of the Vietnam War, any movies of Vietnam War. So in the best of my mind, I was assuming, man, this place is a war-torn country. You know, it's just everybody's trying to get their little bit of economic development, but we know how long it takes for things to recover. And so uh, I had the opportunity of going and my brother had told me a little bit about it where he said like, oh, people are vacationing there. And again, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, people are sectioning off these areas and maybe there's this, but everywhere else is kind of in mess. But then you get there and I get there and it's just like, oh my gosh, yo, like this is, I get to Saigon. It's like, this is a thriving area. Like this is an area where you it's nothing like what I thought of Vietnam prior to, because there's no context for me to have understood Vietnam to be anything else except for what I saw in Rambo movies, what I saw, heard about in the history books. And, you know, and there wasn't an innate curiosity to be like, Oh, let me look at this random Southeast Asian country that I heard about in war. So you get there and I'm just like, this place is amazing. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I, but like, wait, they, these people don't hate us? Like, wait, let me understand what is happening over here. And you get this chance and it's like opening up a new eye and giving you another perspective on how you see, see this world. And this is even, for me, I've, I've traveled most of my life. My family's from Nigeria originally. So at least even going over there, which was also in and of itself, its own eye-opening experience from traveling as a kid and traveling as an adult. But it goes to leads to that point that you you make of people, if you prevent access from occurring, people aren't able to change their uh, their narrative, their um, uh, uh, their their paradigm of of the world. And I've always found interesting that within the rugby concept, that if you are speaking within a, a certain specific culture that seems to resonate at the core, of it where everywhere there's at least a similar element, but then we're just adding these cultural factors that rugby can be a driver that goes for that. You know, haven't been in it for a while. And I know we could have gone more into the talking about where you started, but frankly, I love this conversation far more than what was <laughs> could have been. Uh, <laughs> so, but kind of within your experience, like when you've started traveling out with rugby, how did that even impact the way that you started seeing the world and subsequently how it led to the way that you kind of perceive how you present rugby to others. That's an interesting one because, you know, initially my first travel outside of the country with rugby was in grad school with the, my women's club team. And we went to Europe, went to England and our tour was like, the ugly American, like Wild West tour. <laughs> Just leave that there. Okay, like yeah. So, you know, I mean, uh, there's a reason why when Americans travel, people are not necessarily excited when we're in groups. Right. We're easy to find. Um, yes. Culturally, we stick out. We are loud. We are know-it-alls. Right. We're very upfront. Yeah. There's, there's, yes. there's not yeah. that, that hum, humble cooth <laughs> that comes. No. <laughs> yes, correct. We, we are not smooth. 
Um, so like, and that was like, that was like my first like rugby tour and, you know, typical of rugby in like the early 2000s, you know, I was like before my, I went to my first U S camp. So it was a lot of rugby and partying. Like that was like the international experience was like, and you know, and I look back on that and outside of the fact that I was like in a different country, I don't know how much of it was different than the, the the experience I was having at home in terms of like play games. And then you go in social and you hang out and you're going out to clubs and to, you know, out to eat at like, you know, the local pub. Right. I think, and it's, And for me, it's like really hard, I think, to even kind of like wrap my mind around any of that stuff with my travel with the national team, because I I think that it's not until later years that like I really think about the lack of diversity that was in the game at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, um, the, the like the U.S. team has changed a great deal, so we we have a lot more diversity in our our both our men and women's programs, the sevens and the fifteens. And you know, I look at my time, which was early on, and there weren't, and there there still isn't a lot, but there weren't very many early on um, faces of faces of color. Right. And and I didn't like you know it's just kind of like growing up I didn't it's like one of those things you're like you're thinking about it but but you're not thinking about it right it's, it's, it's an existence but it's not intentional in in the front of your mind yeah. kind of like Satan that middle part just enough for awareness but not enough yeah, for you like, to it's concentrate like, on it's like, it. it's like percolating but it hasn't quite hit boil right and, you know and I think that moment for me is why like even given what is go- currently going on. I mean, our country is being ripped apart at the seams by so much disinformation and people's lack of ability to articulate and acknowledge that there's a lot that needs to be changed. And it's hard to change things when people aren't educated around that change. And so right. I try, I'm trying to be more acutely aware of my place within the fabric of rugby as a female of color right in a way that i i really cannot or can't give myself credit for being nuanced about that in my time in the jersey um and i think when you talk about like moments about travel actually i think that like i think the big one for me was um I volunteered for, well, it's not travel, but this is what started it. I've, I volunteered for World Cup Sevens. Okay. Um, and, you know, I feel like to kind of be well-rounded, because my ultimate goal eventually is to head coach a national team, like an adult national team. Right. Um, and on that list of big bucket items is to become an assistant and, a, and eventually a head coach of a professional team outside of the U.S., Okay. Um, Because I think that, to me, going and head coaching as a woman and like super 15, it would be huge. 
game and, changer such plus the yeah plot. yeah like i'll just like kind of like on a on like different level so that's like that's like a bucket list big item for me right and i would like for that to happen or for a woman to do that right. um so you know i've 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 been on a, a national team staff i you know i assistant coach for pete steinberg and for the 2014 cycle and then when that cycle was over over i was our what we called the high school Americans at the time, but essentially is our USU 18, U 16 girls program. And I did that for two years. So I was like, okay, like let's, let's kind of experience this from a, like a, like a different perspective, like what it's like to be in this high performance environment. So I signed up to be a volunteer for world cup. Well, they didn't know what to do with me at first. What, what do you mean? Because, well, because as a volunteer for world cup for like a team liaison, I, I bring a different experience than I think, you know, having like a grassroots rugby person come because I'm a former international player, right? Former international level coach. So, you know, I bring, I, I brought the perspective of, I kind of understand what players are wanting the sort of like expectations that are around them maybe not specific to sevens, but like in that environment. Yeah, right. And then sort of like the pressures that, it, you know, coaches are kind of under in that kind of like high performance environment around like player welfare, staff welfare and all of those things. So there was like a lot of back and forth about whether they were going to sign me up as a team liaison or have me work in competitions or someplace else. So eventually they were like, well, we're going to have you be a team liaison. And they said, well, um, we're going to give you, prepare you with, the Zimbabwe men. Okay. And I was like, cool. Most amazing experience I've had where we, um, so that was eye opening for me in a sense, because as a union, they have so little. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, just, and so just, yeah. And they're still able to, and with so little support, what they are capable of doing, and a really young team, right. lots of energy, so much joy and gratefulness around playing. I, it was just like, if you needed a, if I had needed a, like a kickstart to falling back in love with the game, like that, like that was it. Every time we got in the vans and we drove somewhere, the like singing, singing. the song and like the, like, and that commitment across the board to, the idea of them as a family, their family at home and at home was not necessarily just like, like familial family, but it was everybody. It was the supporters. It was the staff. It was the union. And like just that strong connection and around like that kind of like that identity and just the humility around being at a world cup. Right. Um, and you know, the, the lack of, ego that existed in those athletes um you know so th like that was just like oh, was amazing and then you get to the jersey ceremony um mm -hmm. and i've i've been to a bunch of them i've like you know i've had the jerseys presented to me mm -hmm. um i've been to a world cup ring for one of those like i've handed the jersey for a test match when i had we had our first test test match for the usu 18 girls um so they're doing theirs and, you know, like I'm, I'm honored to be able to be in the room because it's, it's a big moment, you know, right. and they've got guys on the team who this is going to be their first World Cup. So they get to the two last jerseys 
and they, their, their team manager starts talking about me and like, you're like li- listening, but you're in this moment. So like, right, you just feel all of a sudden, it's, it. yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute, that's, he's talking about me. And you know, I'd never probably really thought of myself as like really being engaged and giving back to the game. Mm-hmm. And cause it's just like, uh, rugby is just a part of who I am. Right. And so I'm trying to stay involved for like forever. So, you know, the manager is talking and thanking me for, you know, being there and that they're honored to have me as their team liaison because, you know, I understand sacrifice to be at a world cup and what it takes in terms of like, you know, your preparation, all of those things. And that, you know, I'm retired from playing, but I'm still involved in giving to the game. Right. And they let me give two jerseys. Wow. So I handed two players their first World Cup jersey. And that just was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, this is huge. And it's probably the next biggest moment to the first time I put my jersey on was yeah. handing that to them. And then that was such an amazing experience for me. I was like, I like, there's so much to learn to being a part of this environment without being a player or a coach to take, to take away. So I applied to be a volunteer for Cape Town sevens. Yeah. And you have your six degrees of separation. So it turned out that um, the women's club coach for the team that I am, well, I was playing, but now I'm not um, affiliated with here in Maryland brother is a media manager for Saru. And so he just directly connected me. We talked and I went over and got to work in media, which is a whole different, like different kind of experience way to, to see the international game. Um, And and that was amazing because I got to go on the field and watch the stormers practice while I was there. I met Sia Khaleesi, um, and that was such an amazing experience. He is um, a genuine, humbling human being, like just was awesome. Like right. he was in a full conversation with their team manager and um, my guide walked me in to introduce me to everybody and he stopped talking, stood up, took his hat off, came around the desk to shake my hand and introduce himself to me. Like, That's awesome. The, you know, just, the full respect yeah. of the moment it is and just... Yeah. And the crazy thing is, you know, the first thought I, that I had was this wouldn't happen in the States. Right. Because, but that's going back to that culture that, that has developed over time to be able to establish itself in, um, and, and has set itself apart from what is just a standard foundation that goes across the board. Yeah. And then, and then you talk about like the experiences in American traveling abroad. Um, so Cape Town was my first time anywhere in Africa. Okay. Um, we are not going to ha- talk. We will save talking about my mom's reaction to that trip <laughs> at a later date. Cause that was pretty um, amusing and then not amusing. Um, but the crazy thing is, is when I got there, like, uh, I mean, in the mall, the security, the mall guards have like machine guns because yeah. Yeah, and just, you know the, my friend, I stayed military police kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and the 
and my friend that I stayed with has cars like bulletproof glass and in his driver's side door, there's a, there's a gun, you know, I just was like, <laughs> immediately, like, am I gonna like, yeah, I'm like, am I gonna be okay? And I, you know, I'm a runner. So the two things is, um, so when I, we went out to where his, when I, my friend, he and his wife took me to where his parents live and we went out there so I could kind of be near the beach because they live in um, Strand. Right. And the first thing I did was go out and run. I was like, yeah, sweet. Like I'm running along the ocean in and, South Africa. This is beautiful. Fucking it's... amazing. Yeah. Wait, wait. And it was like some kind of. Oh, no, oh. I was going to say before you continue on that. Uh, well, I guess you might be explaining it, but like that realization that you were in Africa, this positional place that America does not speak very highly of um, in, in no. any sense, in, in most majority sense of the way. Um, did it just feel that much more surreal as you were running on it? Just like, um, there's this I, I think, I think that like the, the part of it that was surreal, I was going to talk about as well is when I meet people, the first question they would ask me is, did you think you were going to be in the bush? <laughs> and I, I'd like awkwardly laugh and be like, no. And then they would go on to say, well, that's what Americans think Africa is. Right. The bush. And like, you know, I just kind of was in, and it wasn't like just one or two people. I could ask that a lot. Yeah. A super, yeah. very, it was like a frequent question. Um, it's like a base it was question. Like, yeah. And it was like, and, you know, kind of was like uh, awkward and then just really eye opening because we, we don't, you know, flashback to my freshman, sophomore year of college and, sitting in like a lecture hall for like, so like an intro to sociology class. And they're talking about AIDS and Ebola and someone in the class says, well, isn't, well, after like, I'm trying to remember exactly how it is. Cause these are these moments that like they stick with you forever, but like memory, you know, as we get older, memory, memory kind of like warps the words, <laughs> but it was something along the lines of like, well, Africa is a dark continent because AIDS and Ebola that's right. where they're from. And like, say, and you're just sitting there and you're like, this, this is the stuff that breeds violence because this really large intro to Soch textbook that I have could become a weapon of mass destruction because right. that's such an ignorant thing to say. But then you go back to our conversation that we're having now about misinformation right. and access to information. So that white male student exists in this country in the U S with, privilege right privilege because he's male and privilege because he's white but that same privilege affords him with misinformation that he doesn't ever have to question right well you know it, it, it's even interesting in in that especially within that topic again like i said my family is originally from nigeria so we always went back especially younger and i it wasn't until honestly recently i realized how much of a privilege that was to like, we always knew it was a good thing because it connected us with our family, but you don't realize how much it sets the standard on how you understand everything moving forward. 
So, um, you know, as, as a kid who was Nigerian in, and I lived in state college and Pennsylvania and Iowa. So we're not exactly the most diverse areas in the world. So, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and even whenever we came, I came to Louisiana and we still had that pervasive thought process. You're always getting told, asked these questions. Oh man, what is Africa? I remember, you know, Africa's this disease place. Oh, everybody's poor. And then you get those stupid commercials on TV of, you know, the, the, the Christian, whatever, whatever fund. And you just see the skinny kids with the bloated bellies. And it's just like con- confirmation, confirmation, confirmation. And I'll even add to this. Like I said, went there as a kid, went there up until 99. Didn't get to again, didn't get to go again until 2012. That concept, despite having the knowledge, still ended up playing into our mindset of that location because of what our surroundings were. So when we went back in 2012, I remember my brother and I going like, man, you know, it's going to be tough. I don't know if we're going to be able to move the way that we want to. Hopefully it doesn't take too long. And what, you know, it was just like, we're not going to have the same modern effects, essentially was what we were saying. We're not going to have the same modern effects. And then we get to Nigeria and it was just like, why did we allow ourselves to get caught up in this mythos, uh, this negative mythos of this continent? Because as a kid, we might not have had the awareness simply because, you know, we were kids. It's just, it is, but we're not recognizing all the surroundings. We just know family. Hey, we go to the village. We go see our uncles, see our aunts, our grandparents, blah, 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 blah. But then as an adult, as you become much more capable of processing the information, it's like, no, this place is as good as any. Don't get me wrong. Its problems are very real, but its problems are far less foreign than any other place. It just might be a little, little bit more emblematic because there's just a longer history that goes along with it. The issues are far, far, far deeper rooted than it is on just this level of, oh, Afri- these Africans are poor. These Nigerians are poor. It's like, no, nah, they're not poor. Like, the, they're really the money there. They're, it's not a broken behind the world place. It's very much there. It's just there's these, this element of access, misinformation that resonates within the country itself and, and, uh, and impactfully resonates outside the area itself and affects that internal working. And it shows just how powerful that messaging can be that even for us who experienced it firsthand can still be thrown off until having to re-experience it again, you know? So it becomes surreal in and of itself. And the next time I go, it's probably going to still be maybe not as surreal because I don't have the lack of respect for it, but it becomes even more appreciated, I guess, maybe it might be the proper thought process. Yeah. I mean... You know, I, I I've only I've only had that one trip to to Cape Town, but I think that you articulate really well. Every place has its issues, and oftentimes they are tied to socioeconomics, right? Which is further complicated by other things. So, like you have the whole continent of Africa around socioeconomics is still to this day probably dealing with trickle-down effects from colonialism. Right. Very much like we are. And like right. you said, like it's a much longer history of having to sort of deal with the aftermath of everything that that sort of like seeped itself into. I mean, you talk about systemic issues. 
it's a, you know, it's no different than it is here. Um, There is poverty in Africa. There is poverty in the U S and they are how they manifest themselves visually is different because we're, we're different geographies we're different countries with, you know, uh, like our access points to certain things are, are different, but poverty is poverty. Right. And, you know, and I also probably was a bit guilty of that there, you know, driving down the highway and, you know, going into downtown Cape Town from Goodtown and seeing the, sh- the shanties along the highway. And even traveling with the, you know, I coached at Gonzaga High School for a long time, which is a all-boy Jesuit school in D.C. that takes their players on tour every year. And, you know, being in Argentina and driving on the highway and seeing their version of shanty towns. And I remember seeing, you know, I was like, we're on the highway going into downtown Cape Town and, you know, seeing the buildings. And, and, and the first time we did that, I like my visceral reaction was just like, wow, that's <laughs> awful. And then, you know, I then think back to when I first moved to Chicago and tell me if you remember this movie, Cabrini, um, uh, Candyman. Yeah. Okay. So the Candyman was filmed in Cabrini Green, which is one of the worst Projected. projects in Chicago at the time. Right. Okay, so, you know, we go to this moment where I'm like, oh, the shantytown, you know, my, my whole American judgmental self, like, oh, God, this is awful. Oh, I used to practice in Cabrini Green <laughs> before they tore that stuff down. And you could not bring bags with you or leave anything by the field or it would be gone. Right. Um, there were police patrolling all this all the time because I mean the city of Chicago has a ton of like violence. Right. But at that time, like you know, over the weekend, the, the number of people like gun, um, gang warfare happening, drugs in that area were super high because it was you know it was high. The projects in 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 America are are American shanty towns. Right. And like you know. The kids used to come out with their little like uh, laser beams on the windows and shine them on us in the middle of like practice and stuff. Like someone lost like wheels on their car when we're at practice. And like, what about that is any different than what I saw driving down the highway? There isn't anything. Exactly. But it's because we have this perception that it's in Africa, that it's got to be so much worse than what we have. Right. Because they're uneducated and they're poor and. That's no Although, different than it is. He, it, it is here, right. and you know, and it's funny because like I stayed um, with my friend and his wife, and they're they're white South Africans, so they're Afrikaners, um, and you know, I think they were so afraid that I was going to come in as an American and kind of shake have your this idea. No, I think it was more like they had this idea that like I'm untouchable because I'm American because uh, I think oftentimes that is sort of the attitude that we travel with. Right. So I don't think they overplayed it, but there was so much um, fear in how they explained things to me around like my security, 
like my, like the safety of my well-being. So when I came right. home and talked about going out and running, people would literally been- look at me like, you went running by yourself? And I said, <laughs> well, yeah. I was like, I always ran when someone was at the house. Right. Um, and, you know, in their neighborhood, they kind of gave me, walked me a loop and said that they would prefer that I kind of like stayed within these parameters. Right. Which is like understandable. Makes sense. It's a foreign. It's a foreign country. Yeah. I'm a female running by myself. I was like, cool. And like, I mean, it's no different than going around in my neighborhood here. Like, pe- but guys a familiar territory. Call and stuff. Yeah. So, but it, I mean, the first time I talked about that, like the look, the sheer <laughs> look of terror on someone's face that I, Fair Douglas, a female, all by myself, went running. <laughs> In Cape Town, and I and I ran in the city too. Yeah, like, I mean, why would I not? The temperature is beautiful. It's like right. gorgeous. Like, so yeah, I I ran in downtown Cape Town, out to the water, and ran along the water. And when I was in Strand, I did. Um, I freaked them out there because, um, like the front gate goes out to the main road, which is like on the you know, Dirt. goes along the, the beach because it's like right. a like a like a gated community. But the right. back gate, if you go out and you go, I think it was like right, takes you down the road to a like a like a shanty town. And like somebody got like had been hurt. Like and st- when I say hurt, they got stabbed and right. their phone got taken away. But then, like, that's is, all, right. Yeah, but that's also like I mean that excuse the expression, but that shit happens here because it, like, if you, if you run around oblivious, carrying things of value and just have them open, right. You stand out and there are always, the world is full of haves and have nots. Right. And if the haves run around holding their their stuff, put a target. Yeah. Like it, as much as you would like to say that, like that is not true. Like if you systematically deny people, access to things they will rebel and take it when they can right right no i i, I agree I, I remember i mean even now you know i remember whenever i used to do like door-to-door sales right and i used to do it in miami uh, in what would be zion city which was arguably i guess from the 90s and early 2000s one of the more dangerous uh lo- um more dangerous project areas of miami <clears throat> and I'd always been warned about it, but it was just like, hey, look, we're just going to go and we're going to see what happens. And to be honest with you, you know, I went through, there might've been that initial nervousness, but I think after a little bit, I just stopped caring and I literally just went my way. But the thing that stood out to me was I could just go my way. It's people just wanting to live. Now, if you, if it was somewhere I was just like, and I'm in a suit and tie and stuff like that, of course. And people see me, but they understand what's the situation that's happening because people aren't inherently like, I'm going to go and get them because they're simply in existence. You know, it's a, it's a respect of what the environment sells you. Like, Hey, I'm not here trying to flash my money and I'm not here trying to create attention for myself or even more importantly, moving without this, with this lost look, there's a systemic, there's a systematic method of my movement. And I go back to how it is with anybody with a human in, within a certain level of society, you have to move with a certain level of familiarity, even if you're not familiar, 
because people are not inherently, I don't believe, inherently trying to create evil. It is most likely on average, let me put that correctly. On average, I do not believe people inherently try and create evil. And even in these low income areas, it's not a, we want to get you because you are there. It's a, you know, if you have crime areas, usually crime exists in terms of rivalry more likely than anything else. And then in terms of, uh, of essentially positioning yourself as out of place in some way, shape or form, which comes back to the value. It comes back to the, uh, 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 standing out in a major way kind of situation. So like to the point that I'm just saying was like what you said. Yeah. Why? Like while it was a foreign area that you were in and that familiarity is not there, you also understand the concept of being in a structure that can be like that. So you know how to properly maneuver an act that might be different, but is not obvious. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, it's, 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 it's it very interesting how it all ends up connecting together. Um, well, look, let me, let me, let me start right. Cause for, I could literally sit here and talk to you for like the next three hours and just go into this conversation. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving every moment of this. Um, I kind of want to kind of wrap it in because while we didn't go I'm also the- super tangential, sorry. Say that again? I said I'm super tangential. Oh, you don't know. I love it. And so it, it while it differed from where it was gonna be, I it went into an even more positive and honestly an even more interesting conversation that could have been, but I think it ties so well together to everything that's happening. So I'm gonna kind of you know, we're gonna compress things bit a little bit. So where you are now considering your experiences, considering these knowledges, this understanding of identity being a very big factor in your performance. Um, how is it that you, how is it that you, does it, cons- uh, let me restate this. How does it consistently project itself from you in how you teach your rugby players and how you've been teaching rugby players moving forward? Um, because obviously whenever you are, are, are showing, it's more than just what's going to happen on the field. You're doing as much off the field as it does impact on the field. So for you, how do these all kind of present themselves into how you project the way that you present rugby out? Um, I think, I think in terms of how I present rugby out, it would be getting them to, feel free to express who they are within the game. Um, And then the other side of that, which is not directly related to actually like rugby per se, so much as it's about programming culture is creating a safe space. So, you know, Mount St. Mary's, it's in Emmitsburg, Maryland. It is a predominantly white institution in a very white area. Um, And we are arguably probably one of the most, if not the most diverse team on campus. And I like to pride myself on creating that. Um, I have like, we're representative of a variety of states. Um, Over the four years I've been there, religion, the diaspora of 
color not specific to African diaspora. I mean, we're, we're just diverse. We're diverse around identity politics. We're and they feel safe and supported. And that's, I think that's the thing that I want to bring is that this is a place where you can enjoy being an athlete and feel safe and comfortable being in the skin you choose to wear. Um, and in particular at this time, it, I think it's really important in what's happening in the world to make sure that I continue to build the diversity and color um, so that we have that and that the sport represents what our sport looks like globally, not just here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. or England, the <laughs> U.K. Um, and being supportive of, of, of those women because I remember what it was like to not see a lot of faces like my own. Um, you know, when the first time that we played South African women and, you know, it was the reverse. Yeah. We had, I think, like, two, two white women on that team. And just, like, you know, just seeing, like, like, literally the reverse of the team that I'm on and just, like, being like, wow. And when we hung out with them. So, for me, it's about creating that, like, sisterhood, that family, um, and just continuing to build diversity that will allow us as a collective group to – one be ambassadors for what rugby can represent right. within our community. And then for us individually to go out and represent that in where we exist outside the world. So I have a, I have a rising senior um, and she wants to be a civil rights lawyer, you know, and I have a young woman who will be graduating early and, the amount of things that she is involved in on campus um, are amazing. And if yeah. I had not met her, she had not come out and walked on to rugby, she would have left the university based on her experience as a young woman of color. Um, wow. And because she met me and joined rugby and had someone advocating and supporting her, she's going to graduate with a degree from our university. And it's like those moments to realize through sport, how impactful as a coach and in particular, because I'm a female coach of color and I am the only head coach of color at our university right now. Um, there was a young man who was head coaching our basketball team. He's now at um, GW phenomenal human being um, and an amazing coach, but you know, there aren't a lot of, our faces are far and few within, you know, higher level staff positions in the university setting in particular across the board, whether it's athletics, whether it's administration, whether it's faculty. Um, so the realization I've had over the last probably year and a half as I've been pressed, not directly, but indirectly through the young women on my team is to be a visible force of change and representation because I've been gifted with my position and afforded the ability to be visible and be a voice that can represent and, you know, 
also demonstrate that there are opportunities and pathway. Um, you know, I just did an article, just got interviewed because I have four current players from Guam on my team and I have another two coming in and it's not crazy to imagine that you would have a player from Guam, but I right. will have six from a, what is a small, it's a very small place. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, and kind of building that connection to the island and realizing the opportunity that rugby presents everyone. I mean, choose why when roots developed and they reached out to me, I was like, yes, like I want to play. And I turned in my application for that and was really excited to be a part of that inaugural women's team is because it affords us opportunity and an and visibility in a way that allows us to shine not only athletically, but for our intellectual powers to be articulated in ways that we are often not afforded. Right. And, you know, and you look at like the voices that we have developing, Venetia McGee, um, Phaedra, and, you know, and we're just talking about like in the, in the women's game and I'm looking at my team and there are some women that may not go far in terms of their high level rugby, but they are going to be phenomenal advocates of this sport and of people of color because of, you know, because of what they've been, what they've been afforded in their experience through sports through rugby here at the university, but in particular, you know, how it intersects with everything else with their history prior to the moment they stepped on the field interlaced with being at a predominantly white institution. So I just think that like, we're like in such a pivotal moment in our country's history where the cycle can just repeat itself and repeat itself and repeat itself where, you know, a couple more years down the road, we'll go back to this where everyone's posting and reading books, but real change hasn't happened or we can empower these young powerfully minded individuals to go out and advocate for change and they don't have to wait till they graduate mm -hmm. like and for them to realize that like sports can be a sounding board that will provide them tools to do those things and to give back and create change in their communities and I think that's that's what I want them to take away from and so that is something that I have to do a better job of in terms of like my place within not just the fabric of rugby, but where rugby intersects with like with things out. Yeah. With life. And so I've challenged myself going forward to be a better example of how you can be engaged in the world because I want them to leave having had a phenomenal experience as a student athlete because it sets you up for success because right. you learn a lot of life lessons, but I want them to go out and say, I can be an advocate for whatever it is that's important to me and know that my voice is going to matter because I will make it matter. Dude, so I, I like, so in my roundabout way, that's kind of like, yeah, that's my thing. And, I I, mean, and, I'm, and I'm working on that. I'm working on that. And like, I'm, I'm just big on the diversity piece of things because like, we're just going to take it all over. Right. Kidding, but not. <laughs>
<laughs> but no, it, it really is. It's a process. But the thing is, it, it's something that you're already doing. Like, just by the nature of you being and the nature of having that awareness sets you up that way one way or another. And so I would say, in my opinion, you know, I, I would give you so much credit for what you've already done. And I continue to give credit to where you're going to be going with it and continuing to be able to develop that way because um, from it's not just from just just for people of color, not just for black people of color, but in general, like you said, it, it adds such a lift to the rest of the psychology of what happened. And that generational trickle down effect impacts everything that goes further on from there. So um, what might seem like still a, a process and a struggle now might be a hammer and the nail going through for later on and you're just getting better and better at it each time. So, um, I'm happy and I'm, I'm glad. And, uh, um, I'm, I'm thankful that you are part of that, that process and for everything you're doing up to this point and continuing on. So, um, where can people find you and find out more information about Mount St. Mary's about you, or if they have any advice, have, have any questions that you, they think you might be able to answer. Cause yo, you got, you dropped a lot of knowledge here today. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, if they have, I would say, so if they have questions around the university itself, um, we are NCAA, so I would just recommend that they go to our um, the school's like web page and around the sport, like any kind of information they need is there to contact to contact me through that avenue because that is a compliance issue for me. Um, but if anybody wants to contact me with questions around some of the stuff that we talked about, um, they can reach out to you. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll, I'll and then, ride the filter yeah, and through. Then, yeah, I, I think that's probably the best way to do it. Um, awesome. Is, and then you can, like, connect me. And I, I'm, I'm happy to have to chat more about these things. Um, it is, you know, I probably I, – I quit grad school, I think, like, four or five times for rugby. No regrets because your body will limit the amount of time that you physically can play at an elite level. That's right. just – science um but i am a firm believer that your brain unless you're having medical issues you can go back to school you you're always capable of learning and bettering yourself from an intellectual standpoint so when i made those decisions it was because i knew that at any point in time i could make the decision to go back and continue my learning which is a process that i'm actually thinking about right now but i legitimately have like I think enough graduate credits in English literature to actually have my PhD. Yeah. Um, so I've done like one of the things I was super, super interested in is like, I love the Harlem Renaissance, like Jean Toomer, Jean, yeah. one of my favorite books. Um, it is like the Harlem Renaissance answer to Canterbury tales. Nice. Bomb. Um, so I recommend it. It's a quick read. And just, there was a lot happening at that time when you talk about like moments of like, sort of like, intellectual growth and development that's happening Harlem Renaissance was like bomb around a lot of cultural things. Um, but I was super, super, super taxed with thinking about like the idea of passing to so go back to when I was talking about like identity being performative, yeah. Mella Larson, 
wrote Quicksand and Passing, and they're both about a female protagonist that can pass for white yeah. because they're light enough. Um, and so I had started working on a project around politics of intimacy for women who are passing. So I'm always down for um, intellectual talk. And that sort of kind of like, so you talk about those moments where sort of like what you're experiencing in the world, like interplays into other things like that fascination with the idea of identity and then the fascination with passing and the Renaissance and like Du Bois and the talented 10th, all of that comes out of this moment in my life where all of a sudden I realized, wait, Hong Kong, you are black. <laughs> Your mom might be white. You do not exist in the world as such. Right. And you never will. And like, just kind of like, and all of the sort of like things that came into that moment. Cause I think until that point, I, I'd always thought of myself as just Farah, the student, Farah, the athlete. And all of a sudden it was like this other layer came onto all that, which is like now at this moment in my life, I am a female head coach of color coaching what is still very much a fringe sport in the right. U.S. as an emerging sport in the NCAA and like what that means in terms of all of the things that I represent and can speak to and advocate for means that this job, which I'm blessed to have because not very many of us who are in the rugby world can get paid full time to do what right. we love um, means that I carry a lot of responsibility in terms of using this as a platform and as in, yeah, somehow explain it differently, but like it, it's a platform that I need to make sure that I stay engaged and active on because it's very easily, you know, I can just like sort of like wisp into the, Oh, well I get paid to coach rugby. Isn't this so it's okay, great? Yeah. Yeah, and, and easily I could do that. And and who would fault me? Right. But so, so, yeah. I but but it comes more. Yeah, and, and I think it's also that realization that like how different that first day I walked up to that practice would have been if all of the things that I could possibly put out into the world around our sport that are not necessarily just sport related, if those things right. were out there in that moment, in that context of my experience, like what, what potentially could have been different and the growth I went through in those four years of school. And then you think about call it high school kids and like how, how much growth is happening as they're trying to like navigate and figure out what version of themselves they are in that right. moment of like adolescence where their brain is still developing. They're still learning how their body moves and you know, how different things could have been if there was a voice with the knowledge I have in my particular experience, which is not the same as someone who might look just like me, right. but being able to put that out into the world for someone who might just look at it, me and say, Hey, that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's sort of like me and how right. the different that might've been for me growing up and some of the things I experienced around like identity, so to speak, right. if, like my experience that I'm having now were something that I, my younger self would have had access to like how different, where would I have not struggled so much, you know, and where would I've had more exponential growth 
with access to certain things or just presented differently because you, you go back in and, and, you know, not to, to expand so much, but you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle, but it might've been just a different variation of the struggle, yeah. a different set yeah. of realizations at a different foundation. So, you know, it still all starts from somewhere, but yeah, you know, but that's, yeah. but anyways, to that, your point, that's, that's why we, it, like you said, it's, I've always believed it is a privilege to, if you have been given much or you've worked to be able to acquire much, it becomes a right that you have to do to pass it on. I think it becomes very selfish, especially whenever you're in a position where you have that uniqueness, becomes extraordinarily selfish. Yes, people can be capable of it, but it seems like you are, you are sullying your right to have been able to get there instead of being able to roll that same thing down and, like you said, create that representation for that. Maybe that one person that has a similar, and it may be not similar in totality. Yo, it's just fractional similarities. Fractional similarities that make the biggest difference. Farah, I legitimately, all the way through, thank you so much for for doing this with me uh i'm definitely gonna we're gonna do this again uh because yes, these conversations, awesome. i've really enjoyed this oh thank you so I'm, I'm happy to hear that i'm happy very happy to hear that i <laughs> i i i i i was here for this like like i said i could have gone on for even longer just because of the fact that we were just starting to we were just starting to scratch the surface of what it is to have this philosophy of of putting identity and rugby together like this was great we're definitely going to have her back and and it's definitely going to be worth the listen there's so much to be able to delve into and i want to thank farah for coming on spending the time like it meant the most and guys like you can guys can check out even more podcasts like that or uh with great guests that we've had such as last week we had Rashad Lipford, the founder of North Carolina A&T, James Brunson, uh, the head coach and director for the North Philadelphia Nomads, who also are featured in the movie The Nomads, found on Amazon, available on Amazon. Matthew Provost of Prairie View A&M, Nicholas Walcott of the Chicago Griffins, um, Chetta Emba of USA Rugby Women, uh, Ram Eddings of the Gray Wolves and Idaho State Rugby. Charity Williams of Canada Sevens. Uh, Siphoning Safir of Morehouse College. So many. Blaine Scully for USA Rugby. Uh, Elena, uh, uh, Angie Elena from Switzerland Rugby, known on uh, IG as uh, Elena Angie. And, and just so many great guests that we've had as we're getting up to 20 episodes, man. We've only almost gone 20 episodes on this. And every guest we've had has been as informative, as educational, as insightful as you could ask from anybody. And I, I could not be any more happier. So, uh, guys, check out these other podcasts. We always are bringing in more. We want to be able to make sure that we're showing you that rugby can be more than just a sport. It can be as much a party as it is an opportunity. And we want to make sure that you know the full range that comes across from that and what it can do and what it grows and what it can uh, be made from it because there's so much from an international, from a domestic standpoint that can be done. 
And uh, I'm enjoying being able to bring this to you guys. You guys, also, please don't forget to drop a review. Please don't forget to uh, let us put, uh, um, you know, like us on our social media, Gift Time Rugby or HBC Rugby Classic. Um, and definitely, uh, you guys can always check the videos on this on our YouTube page, Gift Time Rugby Network, uh, youtube.com slash Gift Time Rugby Network. And uh, you guys can catch all our episodes in terms of video form as well as uh, any other content that we have from stories to games to uh, skits and everything in between. So we, we want to make sure that you are fully getting an experiential uh, view on everything. So, guys, thank you so much. And uh, just want to let you make sure you know that you I hope that you are happy. I hope that you are healthy. And know that you are highly favored. Talk to you next time.